0: NATO is 70 today, so has it kept the Russians out, the Americans in and the Germans down? MPs blame Russia for the breakdown of one of the most important Cold War treaties and the 1980s nuclear fallout advice.
1: Part of that credibility is to have a a working civil defence posture. Now, whether it would have worked, (laughs) we really don't know.
0: It's NATO's 70th anniversary today and the Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has marked the occasion with a rare address to the US Congress. He said that NATO did not want a new Cold War, but it must not be naive about relations with Russia. Mr Stoltenberg called on the 29-nation organisation to provide what he called a credible and effective deterrence. In a moment, we'll hear from Jonathan Isle, who is Associate Director of the Royal United Services Institute, as well as our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. But first, let's cross the United States, where we can talk to Simon Marks from Feature Story News in Washington. Hi, Simon. Um, Is the US as annoyed with NATO as it makes out? By that, I mean, I suppose, Donald Trump.
2: Well, I think Donald Trump uh, is uh, at least grumbling still about NATO. He doesn't give voice any longer to the claims that he made on the campaign trail back in 2016 that he considers the alliance obsolete, but he certainly hasn't been particularly enthusiastic uh, about personally joining in the celebrations that have taken place here over the last couple of days, uh, marking the alliance's 70th birthday. And there was an appearance uh, in the uh, Oval Office uh, at the White House Uh, Donald Trump sitting alongside Jen Stoltenberg. You know, a real opportunity there for the President of the United States to pay tribute to the contributions NATO has made to reaffirm America's commitment to Article 5, the self-defense commitment within the NATO treaty. He didn't do any of that. He simply uh, thanked Jen Stoltenberg for coming, uh, said that he had backed him for another term in office and that he hoped Jen Stoltenberg knew that he was a big fan And then he went on to take a whole range of questions from reporters, not about NATO's 70th birthday, but instead about the uh, political issues that he faces here, particularly with regard to the Mueller inquiry. So it was sort of an odd ambience at the White House for the NATO secretary general to sit through all of that and not get very much back from the President of the United States.
0: And yet it was quite an interesting address that uh, Jens Stoltenberg made because it's the first time someone of this authority in NATO has had a joint session of the Congress to speak before.
2: Yes, and I think it's important to underscore that he was there at the invitation of the uh, Republican leader in the US Senate, Mitch McConnell, and many people here are interpreting that as Mitch McConnell sending a signal to NATO and to the White House that Donald Trump may be one kind of Republican, but there are lots of other uh, Republicans up on Capitol Hill who take the view that NATO still matters. And the address itself uh, contained not only uh, that uh, notion that uh, the alliance needs to be ready to deal with the threat uh, that it may eventually face from Russia, but there was also give from Jen Stoltenberg to the Trump administration in the speech. He did indicate that he believed that Donald Trump's emphasis uh, on the need for NATO members to bear more of the financial burden so that the United States ultimately doesn't have to carry the can for the alliance had made a difference, and he did concede uh, that funding was coming in in ways that it hadn't done before. So uh, that was a political gift for Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump didn't really reciprocate with any kind of birthday gift of his hmm. own.
0: Yes, and Simon, how does NATO membership, which is European-based, figure in President Trump's ambition to bring US forces back to the United United States.
2: Well, I mean, he wants NATO partners to do more, and not just NATO partners, but of course other regional partners, particularly in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan and Syria. I mean, I was talking uh, a few weeks ago to a very senior figure within the Trump administration who said the president is absolutely crystal clear on this issue. He wants the troops to come home. He believes that the troops have plenty of work to do in the United States, rebuilding... Uh, American infrastructure. He does not buy the argument advanced by his generals that there is no alternative but to keep those troops deployed. And in that regard, he's looking for NATO to pick up what he argues is uh, slack that exists in the system.
0: Mm, And what about your average American? Are they really aware of NATO? Do they ever read or see NATO stories in the news?
2: Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? If Jen Stoltenberg makes a speech to a joint session of Congress and the television cable news networks barely cover it, does he really make a speech to a joint session of Congress? I mean, of course he does. uh, But there has been precious little on American television, uh, on radio, uh, precious little discussion on the American high street about NATO's 70th anniversary. There is, though, a bit of good news for the alliance in the latest polling from Gallup. 77% of Americans support maintaining the NATO alliance, and that includes Republican Mm. support, which stands at 70%. So that again uh, suggests Uh, that Americans are not entirely in sync with uh, the view that Donald Trump expressed during the 2016 campaign that the alliance is obsolete. They still want to be part of it, but there's other polling that says NATO is not doing enough to help solve the world's problems and needs to do more.
0: All right, Simon, good to talk to you. Thank you for that. That's Simon Marks from Feature Story News. Well, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, was listening to that. Uh, Christopher, is it any more true that NATO is a deterrent or is the limited nuclear weapon capability the only reason real deterrent to argue
3: well it certainly was during the cold war i mean the, it, the, there are enough people who would say look if there's any reason why the U- ussr's then it was and the united states didn't uh, get much closer to a confrontation than they did then it was probably because of the possibility of nuclear uh, uh, nuclear action and so-called mutual uh, assured destruction. Um, there are some interesting things here. Uh, the the fact that it's not in the American national debate, um, that's probably quite good, um, because if it was in the national debate, then that 77 figure of support may not be so be so large. And also, the Americans like the idea of a, a nuclear uh, alliance over over there, as they would put it, in Germany. A lot of their sort of. Relations, fathers, or whatever served in that war. The World War Two is still very much in the in the mind. They're I'm not imagining another one's going to happen, but there's still uh, there's there's still an idea that the. Uh the fact that it may not be very much in the American newspapers that it's certainly not at all in the British newspapers Mm. and we're much closer to the whole consequence and certainly with the debate that uh, are we NATO, are we European Union or whatever, there is an issue here uh, easily resolved but it doesn't actually make any lines, not certainly when not something like Brexit's going on
0: When Jens Stoltenberg says that NATO is the most successful alliance in history is he right? Uh, It's the only one so yes. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we
3: <coughs> we are, we we're actually NATO is very much like the United Nations, uh, easily criticised, easily to say, well, what do we need NATO for? We don't need NATO for. NATO isn't doing anything much at the moment, and you can't look at things such as uh, that was you know that was Thursday gone by. You have to think to yourself, well, hang on, we don't need NATO today because everything's reasonably reasonably peaceful. What about five years time? Mm. What about ten years time? What about two years time? You can't suddenly. You can't suddenly sort of say, right, take out the NATO sort of woodcut and actually put it together. is it's, it's rather like the United Nations in as much that um, if you didn't have it, one of the first things you would probably do is reinvent it.
0: Just coming back to that quote, um, the famous quote about NATO being about the Russians, keeping the Russians out, the Americans in, the Germans down what's the purpose of NATO today
3: uh, it's not to do that I mean the, uh, Germany is uh, not as a military don't forget German, uh, NATO is a, is a political organization that actually has a a, a military uh, has a military fold um, but it doesn't have any forces there are no forces in NATO at all they're just commands in the national commands um, and so the purpose really is to hold the, the hold the wishes and the ambitions uh, of nearly 30 countries all of which all of two are in Europe together Mm. and have and and be willing to sort of do the best they can to to form an alliance which most of it is political other thing to remember out of uh, if you look at the European Union most of the members of the European Union are in NATO So there's a lot of two-way business goes on all the time.
0: Well, the NATO Secretary-General's speech included a call to Russia to rethink its non-compliance with the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with the United States.
4: NATO's position is united and clear. Russia is in violation of the INF Treaty. There are no new American missiles in Europe, but there are new Russian missiles. I continue to call on Russia to return to compliance with the INF Treaty.
0: Well, now a group of MPs says Russia is solely to blame for the end of the Cold War era agreement. The Defence Committee examined the circumstances which led to the US to announce it would leave the pact, which America accuses Russia, of violating. James Hurst spoke to Chairman of the Defence Committee, Dr. Julian Lewis.
5: Well the committee of course hasn't been able to make the direct investigation itself but we do know that the British government has very deeply gone into the uh, material that the Americans were able to produce. And we do know from the public record that Russia originally denied the existence of any such ground launch cruise missile at all. And when the West showed that they knew the designation of it, 9M729 uh, is the actual Russian designator. We've called it uh, SSC-8, uh, which is a, a cruise missile from a ground launcher. Uh, once the Russians saw that we knew what they were doing, they then sort of proceeded to argue well, uh, we don't think that that missile breaches the treaty provisions anyway, and by the way, you've got these and those other launchers yes, from the anti ballistic missile system.
3: Because the Americans have got the Mark 41, which can be used to launch cruise yes. missiles.
5: Yeah, uh, the well, the system that the Americans have is a system that's designed to launch anti-ballistic missiles in an anti-ballistic missile defense field. But the main. Uh, point about this is that Russia has systematically refused to engage with the disputes process that exists to allow allegations of violations to be investigated deeply. First of all, they denied that they had any missiles. Then when they had the missiles, they denied that they fell into the requisite range. Uh, And then as they often do when they're caught red-handed, they started throwing about accusations about other systems that don't conform to the prohibitions of the treaty, and they won't submit uh, the evidence to, uh, in their defence to the adjudicating system that is set up to monitor this treaty.
3: Ultimately, it was America that decided to pull the plug on this. Uh, and right up until that point, Britain other European allies were urging them not to pull out. So, to some, this is just going to look like political top cover for Donald Trump?
5: I think that there is a natural reluctance and I say this as someone who was heavily involved in the great disputes of the 1980s that led to the signing of the INF Treaty in the first place in 1987 so there's a huge reluctance to see this treaty go down the drain but the evidence that has been ascribed to Russian violation of it puts us in the position that either you just turn a blind eye to it and you say having something called a mutually binding treaty is more important than whether or not both parties are observing it. So it's even now not too late for Russia to come back into compliance. But the real trouble is that President Putin has never been happy that Mr. Gorbachev signed this treaty in the first place. And it was very significant that after the six months notice that the Americans had given, that they were going to withdraw from the treaty, uh, after that period was up, and as soon as they did withdraw, Russia very speedily announced its own withdrawal, which showed that it placed no value on trying to remain within the treaty regime.
0: That was Dr. Julian Lewis speaking. Well, joining us now is Jonathan Isle, Associate Director of the Royal United Services Institute. Hello, Jonathan. Um, Is it not more accurate to say that the Intermediate-Range Treaty has simply run out of time? Both Russians and Americans are modernising their systems.
6: Well, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, uh, let us not forget that the treaty itself was a snapshot of a particular historic moment in Europe in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, when it was felt that these, uh, these systems could be abolished. But since then, a lot of countries not subject to such restrictions, like China primarily, but also Israel and others around the world, have developed their own delivery systems. So in some ways, this is a treaty which was overtaken by events The only thing that could be said in its favor is that it was one of the last remaining sort of nuclear control treaties that existed between uh, russia and the united states
0: and christopher this this raises new definitions of arms control and who should be involved
3: well it does you see Jonathan, sort of mentioned the, uh, the other countries that are involved in a much greater area So, for example the chinese have got weapons systems which could go into these sort of treaties but these sort of treaties have always been a bilateral treaties really between the old ussr and and the united states and then anybody else might conform to them, like the United Kingdom, for example, with it, with its own nuclear systems. Um, but it didn't actually bring, uh, as it would today, uh, well, it wouldn't bring the Israelis, although you could ask them to come uh, the Chinese, or the Koreans, uh, the Indians, the Pakistanis, the French, etc. Bring them along and ask them to sign the same treaties. A, you would never get all the signatures on them. And B, you'd never get a verification process that could, could, could stand in, in water. And you would never get ratification. You most certainly wouldn't get ratification from the American Congress. And so I think the whole concept of the treaty might actually be rethought. For example, don't have one. What about, what, just suppose we didn't have any treaties, but you were going to build a, a nuclear capability under whatever style you like mm. and whatever reasons you like anyway. It's something to,
6: something to Jonathan, figure.
0: Jonathan, on that thought, Jonathan Isle, if you were to envisage a new treaty, what would it look like?
6: Well, it's very difficult to envisage a new treaty because the question then will be the Russians have already upped the game and they are insisting that we have to bring into this, uh, the missile defense systems that the Americans are building in places like Romania and Poland. Uh, So, of course, nothing stands still. The price which Mr. Putin is demanding from us or from the United States for a treaty is likely to be prohibitive. And uh, it is not at all clear from official Russian statements whether the Russian military would countenance a treaty like that. The reality is that uh, Russia is a big country and it needs various ranges of delivery systems. So I think that once gone, the treaty cannot be invented.
3: That's right. You see, the, other thing, the, 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 the important word is in, in the treaty itself, in the name of the treaty, is range. And so you say you must not have missiles that have got a range, launch range between, say, let's say, 500 and 1,000 kilometers. In other words, you're saying. Don't put them into Romania, because that means that they're too close to us, within the range of, say, five or thousand, or whatever figure you like to come up with. So it means that you can't put intermediate-range missiles on the way that you would have done before. When you get back to the origins of these treaties, you're back to this period in the sort of early 80s, uh, and America was going to deploy new medium-range missiles into Europe. Uh, And this was the beginning of the whole cruise debate into the United Kingdom, um, because the Russians had produced something called the SS-20. And this was very important to understand that it was the range, how close you were. Until then, you just sort of sat there and ducked in the idea of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Now, it was actually on the shop door.
0: Uh, Jonathan Isles, since we're talking about missile defence systems, uh, just and reflecting also on on NATO's birthday, the position of Turkey, its purchase of the S four hundred missile defence system, which is causing consternation from Russia, uh, purchase from Russia. Uh, how do you see Turkey's position in the alliance going forward with this comp- with this complication?
6: Well, clearly, as far as President Erdogan of Turkey is concerned, he thinks he could uh, uh, sort of engage in barter deals with us. The real dispute is between Turkey and the United States, and it is about something completely different. It's about Turkey's determination to acquire its own manufacturing capability for missile systems and for air defense systems. So they were happy to buy from the United States, but only the United States were to transfer their manufacturing capability as well, which the Americans refused. Uh, so what we're seeing here is a is a, a sort of a bartering game or a game of between the United States a haggling game in which the Turkish president is involved, of a kind that is not tolerable to the United States. The Americans have given plenty of advance notice that this is a no-go area for them, that they will not tolerate an air defense system, a sophisticated Russian air defense system uh, in NATO, and this is not only because it could mess up the communication systems of the alliance, but also because of what it says. political message of what it says.
0: All right, Jonathan, Owl, we'll leave it there for today. Jonathan Owl from the Royal United Services Institute, thank you for your time. SIPREP with Kate Still to come, one Northern Ireland veteran speaks out about being investigated and then told he won't be charged. Why?
4: Not one of them has stood in a riot line and faced a thousand people coming at you with bottles and stones. FBS,
7: Sit rep.
0: One of the soldiers who is being investigated over Bloody Sunday has given us an exclusive interview about what it feels like to be told he is one of 16 who won't be charged. It was announced last month that just one soldier will face criminal proceedings linked to the events of the 30th of January 1972. Laura Macon Isherwood spoke to the man known as Sergeant O.
7: When the families of the 13 men who were shot and killed on Bloody Sunday marched through Londonderry last month, they were hoping then that 17 British military personnel would stand trial over their deaths. But moments later, they were told just one soldier, Soldier F, would face two charges of murder. For the 16 other soldiers told they will not face charges, it brought to an end a 47-year nightmare. Three weeks on, one of them, known as Sergeant O, agreed to speak to Forces News about how it feels to be in the clear.
4: I didn't really think I was under any pressure at all over the years but I realised when I received the letter a great feeling of relief.
7: How did you find out?
4: My lawyer sent me a letter that had been sent from the public prosecution in Ireland but no name, no nothing. It was a cheap and shoddy way to do it. I felt a discarded, you, know, you you didn't count.
7: The soldiers at the centre of this investigation have been under scrutiny for 47 years. They have always maintained that they had acted properly and now 16 have been told there is not enough evidence to prosecute them. The validation Sergeant O said he needed.
4: They haven't got a clue what they're looking at. It. Not one of them has stood in a, in a riot line and faced a, two, a thousand people coming at you with bottles and stones. Petrol bombs, guns, they've never seen it. The government is entirely gutless. They should draw a line under it. The, as they've done for the IRA terrorists, there's a line drawn, they're clear, they're fine. they way waving their letters of comfort. They should do the same for the British Army. Not only for Ireland, for Afghanistan, Iraq and so on. Wipe the slate clean.
7: He grew up under the red beret, he says, and is still proud to wear it. Laura Macon-Isherwood, Forces News.
0: Well, we've also spoken to some of the families of those who died on Bloody Sunday. You can see those interviews on our website, forces.net slash news. Now, Protect and Survive is the name of a 1981 government campaign designed to reassure the British public they could survive a nuclear holocaust. Well, now a new exhibition of the same name at the National Archives in Kew is shining a light on this murky period of Cold War history. Well, Dr Stephen Twigg is a senior manager at the National Archives. He spoke to our reporter, Rosie Layden. The Protect and Survive campaign that gives its name to the exhibition dates from the early 80s. It's really very, very recent history, but quite a different national mindset. Can you, can you tell me something about um, how nuclear weapons were, were seen at the time?
1: Yes, I think you need to know the context of the, the early 1980s. We have, in 79, the Soviet Union invade Afghanistan. We then have the SS-20 mobile missiles that were being deployed by the Soviet Union in, in eastern parts of the the Soviet Union which were very close to Britain we have in response to that Pershing and cruise missiles deployed in British bases and in continental Europe. So you get this build up, this ratcheting effect of possibilities of nuclear war. You certainly get deterrence in its broadest sense that Britain and NATO are determined to uh, defend themselves against possible Soviet aggression and a part of that is to have a credible deterrent And to have a credible deterrent is A. You will use it and B. You need to demonstrate to the Soviet Union that you will use it and part of that background is to have a a coherent civil defence policy because if you can demonstrate that you are going to go the final mile in deterrence as it were you need to at least demonstrate to the Soviet Union that you are prepared to use this weapon. Hopefully we never will but the idea behind deterrence is to be credible and part of that credibility is to have a a working civil defence posture. Now whether it would have worked, <laughs> we really don't know.
0: Well, exactly, it's interesting looking at the, the mock-up of the understairs cupboard and, and this was a, uh, something which the government were advocating people to, to try and think about. Um, do you think that was more for show or or for reassurance or do you think that you know there's a possibility that something like that would have would have helped survival chances? I think
1: it's a combination of both. The public during the eighties, the there was—you know—quite worried. They were apprehensive about the you know, possible nuclear war, even it came due to a build-up of tension or by accident. There were all sorts of worries about nuclear weapons possibly getting into the, the wrong hands or a rogue element of the Soviet Union suddenly taking power. And so, the, 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 the populace needed reassurance. So, part of that reassurance was to build up the defence structure of NATO, and part of it was obviously what would happen if the worst ever came to happen. Can we survive? And part of this, protect and survive, is to give that that certain, I don't know, a promise of an afterlife that isn't as much as a hell as people imagined. The major cities may well have been problems in, but in the countryside where lots of people live, this may well have worked. Uh, It was there to, to reassure, but also there to give credence to the the whole of the British deterrent posture.
0: Dr Stephen Twigg from the National Archives. Uh, Christopher, 1980s. I mean, I remember being really afraid about nuclear war ending us all. Well,
3: So you should have been afraid because it was very much in the public mind. We have never seen uh, the CND, for example, build up to as many members, uh, active members who used to march every weekend. Um, It's also, if you remember, the period of, of President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher which was a formidable right-wing uh, political view of, of of what was going on in Moscow. I was in I was in uh, in Moscow the day that Reagan got shot, mm. and the television and newspapers in in uh, in Russia were saying and saying to people like me who were hanging around, "Hey, listen, that's because you're ready to start a nuclear war." And these are the sort of protests. And so it was it. The story wasn't right, but it was in every, everybody's mind that it was right.
0: In recent times, we've heard people talking about um, today's world being, I don't know, more dangerous than ever before or as dangerous as it ever has been. If you compare it back to that area when you had, that, had the possibility of complete obliteration...
3: No, no. That was in the thing, yeah, yeah, that was at a time when Brezhnev was, 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 was running Russia, although he wasn't running Russia, and nobody was running Russia, and they were just sort of cooling along. And also, you had this thing that we were talking about earlier, you had this, this idea of mutual assured destruction, mad doctrine, that if you fire a missile at me, I'll fire one at you, and that's it, gone, all goodbye, last one, turn the lights out. And this is what this was about. And so when they came up with this thing, Protect and Survive, it was the most naff <laughs> booklet, <laughs> that you could get i I remember it coming through the door and i looked at this and you know i was <laughs> too young to actually read it really it was it was supposed to be sort of hard hard literature and i looked at this and they said get under yeah get your under the stairs ta- get under
0: the table or under the desk well, at school get, or something it shows,
3: like that <coughs> get under the stairs you see <laughs> and i was living i was i was living in a in a lousy flat in london and we didn't have any stairs mm. And I said, where do I go? And just as a bit of a joke, I actually wrote to the Defence Ministry and said that uh, this thing doesn't apply to me. Only you
0: would do that. No, no, it's not (laughs) only
3: me. I wrote to him and said, look, this doesn't apply to me. Will I be all right if I do the following? And the following was go down to Deptford and get on a bus. And if I could get enough people <laughs> together, we would drive the bus to Brighton. Would that be okay? Well, of course they didn't. I mean, they're quite rightly, Emo didn't didn't reply. But that's the sort of thing that people were doing. Now, I'll tell me something else. What when, do you mean
0: they were getting on the bus to? Die? No, they were not.
3: Yeah, we, was enough people would make the protest against protect and survive, mm. and show the lunacy of it. Now, but what's important is today, is it is quite a different thing. It's not a question of Russia is the enemy. And nobody talks about intercontinental ballistic missiles now, which were the great threat, and isn't is what we talked about then. Mm. What people talk about now is Putin. They talk about the, 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 the individual. And is Putin a threat, not is Russia a threat? And what was interesting in the period I'm talking about, and sort of saying it being in Moscow, uh, Brezhnev wasn't a threat. What the Russians talked about was Reagan. They didn't talk about the United States. And I think that's the thing that's similar. We've picked out for ourselves a villain a devil character, and we believe it's just just possible. And if you were really upset about them taking back Crimea a couple of years ago, you see why a lot of people believe that.
0: Well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. If you've got an opinion you'd like to share about something you've heard on the programme, you can tweet us at sitrep and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. So join us again next week. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon. Bye-bye.